Section 19 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Roman Neighbourhoods, Part 2. I have perhaps justified to the reader the mild proposition with which I started, convinced him, that is, that Albano is worth a walk. It may be a different walk each day, moreover, and not resemble its predecessors, save by its keeping in the shade. Galleries, the roads are prettily called, and with the justice that they are vaulted and draped overhead, and hung with an immense succession of pictures. As you follow the few miles from Genzano to Frascati, you have perpetual views of the Campania, framed by clusters of trees. The vast iridescent expanse of which completes the charm and comfort of your verdurous dusk. I compared it just now to the sea, and with a good deal of truth, for it has the same incalculable lights and shades, the same confusion of glitter and gloom. But I have seen it at moments, chiefly in the misty twilight, when it resembled less the waste of waters than something more portentous, the land itself in fatal dissolution. I could believe the fields to be dimly surging and tossing and melting away into quicksands, and that one's very last chance of an impression was taking place. A view, however, which has the merit of being really as interesting as it seems, is that of the Lake of Nemi, which the enterprising traveller hastens to compare with its sister sheet of Albano. Comparison in this case is particularly odious, for in order to prefer one lake to the other, you have to discover faults, where there are none. Nemi is a smaller circle, but lies in a deeper cup, and if with no grey Franciscan pile to guard its woody shores, at least in the same position, the little high-perched black town to which it gives its name, and which looks across at Genzano on the opposite shore as Palazzuolo regards Castel Gandolfo. The walk from Ariccia to Genzano is charming, most of all when it reaches a certain grassy piazza from which three public avenues stretch away under a double row of stunted and twisted elms. The Duke Cesarini has a villa at Genzano, I mentioned it just now, whose gardens overhang the lake, but he also has a porter in a faded rakish-looking livery who shakes his head at your profit, Frank, unless you can reinforce it with a permit countersigned at Rome. For this annoying complication of dignities, he is justly to be denounced. But I forgive him for the sake of that ancestor who in the 17th century planted this shady walk. Never was a prettier approach to a town than by these low-roofed, light-checkered corridors. Their only defect is that they prepare you for a town of rather more rustic coquetry than Genzano exhibits. It has quite the usual allowance, the common cynicism of accepted decay. 
and looks dismally as if its best families had all fallen into penury together and lost the means of keeping anything better than donkeys in their great dark vaulted basements and mending their broken window panes with anything better than paper it was on the occasion of this drear gensano that i had a difference of opinion with a friend who maintained that there was nothing in the same line so pretty in europe as a pretty new england village the proposition seemed to a cherisher of quaintness on the face of it inacceptable but calmly considered it has a measure of truth i am not fond of chalk-white painted planks certainly i vastly prefer the dusky tones of ancient stucco and pepperino but i succumb on occasion to the charms of a vine-shaded porch of tulips and dahlias glowing in the shade of high-arching elms of heavy-scented lilacs bending over a white paling to brush your cheek i prefer siena to lowell said my friend but i prefer farmington to such a thing as this in fact an italian village is simply a miniature italian city and its various parts imply a town of fifty times the size at genzano are neither dahlias nor lilacs and no odours but foul ones flowers and other graces are all confined to the high-walled precincts of duke cesarini to which you must obtain admission twenty miles away the houses on the other hand would generally lodge in new england cottage porch and garden and high-arching elves included in one of their cavernous basements these vast grey dwellings are all of a fashion denoting more generous social needs than any they serve nowadays they speak of better days and of a fabulous time when italy was either not shabby or could at least carry off her shabbiness for what follies are they doing penance through what melancholy stages have their fortunes ebbed you ask these questions as you choose the shady side of the long blank street and watch the hot sun glare upon the dust-coloured walls and pause before the fetid gloom of open doors i should like to spare a word for mouldy little namey perched upon a cliff high above the lake at the opposite side but after all when i had climbed up into it from the waterside passing under a great arch which i suppose once topped a gateway and counted its twenty or thirty apparent inhabitants peeping at me from black doorways and looked at the old round tower at whose base the village clusters and declared that it was all queer queer desperately queer i had said all that was worth saying about it Nemi has a much better appreciation of its lovely position than Gensano, where your only view of the lake is from a dunghill behind one of the houses. At the foot of the round tower is an overhanging terrace, from which you may feast your eyes on the only freshness they find in these dusky human hives, the blooming seam, as one may call it, of strong wild flowers which 
binds the crumbling walls to the face of the cliff. Of Rocca di Papa, I must say as little. It consorted generally with the bravery of its name, but the only object I made a note of as I passed through it on my way to Monte Cabo, which rises directly above it, was a little black house with a tablet at its face, setting forth that Massimo d'Azeglio had dwelt there. The story of his sojourn is not the least attaching episode in his delightful Riccordi. From the summit of Monte Carlo is a prodigious view, which you may enjoy with whatever good nature is left you by the reflection that the modern passionist convent occupying this admirable site was erected by the Cardinal of York, grandson of James the Second, on the demolished ruins of an immemorial temple of Jupiter. The last foolish act of a foolish race. For me, I confess, this folly spoiled the convent, and the convent all but spoiled the view. For I kept thinking how fine it would have been to emerge upon the old pillars and sculptures from the lava pavement of the Via Triumphalis, which wanders grass-grown and untrodden through the woods. A convent, however, which nothing spoils, is that of Palazzuola, to which I paid my respects on this same occasion. It rises on a lower spur of Monte Carlo, on the edge, as we have seen, of the Alban Lake, and though it occupies a classic site, that of early Alba Longa, it displays nothing more precious than memories, and legends so dim that the antiquarians are still quarrelling about them. It has a meagre little church and the usual sham peregrino with a couple of tinsel crowns for the Madonna and the infant inserted into the canvas, and it has also a musty old room hung about with faded portraits and charts and queer ecclesiastical knick-knacks, which borrowed a mysterious interest from the sudden assurance of the simple Franciscan brother who accompanied me that it was the room of the son of the King of Portugal. But my peculiar pleasure was the little thick-shaded garden which adjoins the convent and commands from its massive artificial foundations an enchanting view of the lake. Part of it is laid out in cabbages and lettuce, over which a rubicon brother with his frock tucked up was bending with a solicitude which he interrupted to remove his skull-cap and greet me with the unsophisticated, sweet-humoured smile which, every now and then in Italy, does so much to make you forget the ambiguities of monarchism. The rest is occupied by cypresses and other funereal umbrage, making a dank circle round the old cracked fountain black with water moss. The parapet of the terrace is furnished with good stone seats, where you may lean on your elbows to gaze away a sunny half-hour, and feeling the general charm of the scene, declare that the best mission of such a country in the world has been simply to produce, in the way of prospect and picture, these masterpieces of mildness. Mild here, as in a dream, the whole attained effect. Mild as resignation. 
mild as one's thoughts of another life. Such a session wasn't surely an experience of the irritable flesh. It was the deep degustation on a summer's day of something immortally expressed by a man of genius. From Albano, you may take your way through several ancient little cities to Frascati, a rival centre of villeggiatura, the road following the hillside for a long morning's walk and passing through alternations of denser and clearer shade, the dark vaulted alleys of ilex and the brilliant corridors of fresh sprouting oak. The Campagna is beneath you continually, with the sea beyond Ostia receiving the silver arrows of the sun upon its chaste and burnished shield, and mighty Rome to the north, lying at no great length in the idle immensity around it. The highway passes below Castel Gandolfo, which stands perched on an eminence, behind a couple of gateways surmounted with the papal tiara and twisted cordon, and I have more than once chosen the roundabout road for the sake of passing beneath these pompous insignia. Castel Gandolfo is indeed an ecclesiastical village, and under the peculiar protection of the popes, whose huge summer palace rises in the midst of it like a rural Vatican. In speaking of the road to Frascati, I necessarily revert to my first impressions, gathered on the occasion of the Feast of the Annunziata, which falls on the 25th of March, and is celebrated by a peasant's fair. As Murray strongly recommends you to visit this spectacle, at which you are promised a brilliant exhibition of all the costumes of modern nation, I took an early train to Frascati and measured in company with a prodigious stream of humble pedestrians the half-hour's interval to Grotta Ferrata, where the fair is held. The road winds along the hillside among the silver-sprinkled olives and through a charming wood, where the ivy seemed tacked upon the oaks by women's fingers, and the birds were singing to the late anemones. It was covered with a very jolly crowd of vulgar pleasure-takers, and the only creatures not in a state of manifest hilarity were the pitiful little overladen, overbeaten donkeys, who surely deserve a chapter to themselves in any description of these neighbourhoods, and the horrible beggars who were thrusting their saws and stumps at you from under every tree. Everyone was shouting, singing, scrambling, making light of dust and distance, and filling the air with that childlike jollity which the blessed Italian temperament never goes round about to conceal. There is no crowd surely at once so jovial and so gentle as an Italian crowd, and I doubt if in any other country the tightly packed third-class car in which I went out from Rome would have introduced me to so much smiling and so little swearing. Grotta Ferrata is a very dirty little village, with a number of raw new houses baking on the hot hillside, and nothing to charm the fond gazer but its situation and its old fortified abbey. After pushing about among the shabby little booths, 
and declining a number of fabulous bargains in tinware shoes and pork, I was glad to retire to a comparatively uninvaded corner of the abbey and divert myself with the view. This grey ecclesiastical stronghold is a thoroughly scenic affair, hanging over the hillside on plunging foundations which bury themselves among the dense olives. It has massive round towers at the corners and a grass-grown moat enclosing a church and a monastery. The forecourt within the abbatial gateway now serves as the public square of the village and in fair time, of course, witnesses the best of the fun. The best of the fun was to be found in certain great vaults and cellars of the abbey where wine was in free flow from gigantic hogsheads. At the exit of these trickling grottoes, shady trellises of bamboo and gathered twigs had been improvised, and under them a grand guzzling proceeded, all of which was so in the fine old style that I was roughly reminded of the wedding feast of Gamaco. The banquet was far less substantial, of course, but it had a note as of immemorial manners that couldn't fail to suggest romantic analogies to a pilgrim from the land of no cooks. There was a feast of reason close at hand, however, and I was careful to visit the famous frescoes of Dominichino in the adjoining church. It sounds rather brutal, perhaps, to say that when I came back into the clamorous little piazza, the sight of the peasants swilling down their sour wine appealed to me more than the masterpieces, Murray calls them so, of the famous Bolognese. It amounts, after all, to saying that I preferred ten years to Dominichino, which I am willing to let pass for the truth. The scene under the ricky trellises was the more suggestive of ten years that there were no costumes to make it too Italian. Murray's attractive statement on this point was, like many of his statements, much truer twenty years ago than today. Costume is gone or fast going. I saw among the women not a single crimson bodice and not a couple of classic headcloths. The poorer sort dressed in vulgar rags of no fashion and colour and the smarter ones in calico gowns and printed shawls of the vilest modern fabric had honoured their dusky tresses, but with rich applications of grease. The men were still in jackets and breeches, and with their slouched and pointed hats and open-breasted shirts and rattling nether leggings, may remind one sufficiently of the Italian peasant as he figured in the woodcuts familiar to our infancy. After coming out of the church, I found a delightful nook, a queer little terrace before a more retired and tranquil drinking shop where i called for a bottle of wine to help me to guess why i drew the line at dominichino this little terrace was a capricious excrescence at the end of the piazza itself simply a greater terrace and one reached it picturesquely by ascending a short inclined plain of grass-grown cobblestones and passing across a little dusky kitchen through whose narrow windows the light of the mighty landscape beyond touched up old earthen pots 
The terrace was oblong, and so narrow that it held but a single small table placed lengthwise. Yet nothing could be pleasanter than to place one's bottle on the polished parapet. Here you seemed, by the time you had emptied it, to be swinging forward into immensity, hanging poised above the campagna. A beautiful gorge with a twinkling stream wandered down the hill far below you, beyond which Marino and Castel Gandolfo peeped above the trees. In front, you could count the towers of Rome and the tombs of the Appian Way. I don't know that I came to any very distinct conclusion about Dominichino, but it was perhaps because the view was perfection that he struck me as more than ever mediocrity. And yet I don't think it was one's bottle of wine either that made one, after all, maudlin about him. It was the sense of the foolishly usurped in his tenure of fame, of the derisive in his ever having been put forward. To say so, indeed, savours of flogging a dead horse, but it is surely an unkind stroke of fate for him that Murray assures 10,000 Britons every winter in the most emphatic manner that his communion of St. Jerome is the second finest picture in the world. If this were so, and would certainly here in Rome, where such institutions are convenient, retire into the very nearest convent, with such a world, one would have a standing quarrel. Yet this sport of destiny is an interesting case, in default of being an interesting painter, and I would take a moderate walk in most moods to see one of his pictures. He is so supremely good an example of effort detached from inspiration, and school merit divorced from spontaneity, the one of his fine, frigid performances ought to hang in a conspicuous place in every academy of design. Few things of the sort contain more urgent lessons or point a more precious moral. And I would have the headmaster in the drawing school take each ingenuous pupil by the hand and lead him up to the triumph of David or the chase of Diana or the red-nosed Persian Sibyl and make him some such little speech as the following. This great picture, my son, was hung here to show you how you must never paint, to give you a perfect specimen of what in its boundless generosity the providence of nature created for our fuller knowledge, an artist whose development was a negation. The great thing in art is charm, and the great thing in charm is spontaneity. Domenichino, having talent, is here and there an excellent model. He was devoted, conscientious, observant, industrious. But now that we have seen pretty well what can simply be learned to do its best, these things help him little with us because his imagination was cold. It loved nothing. It lost itself in nothing. Its efforts never gave it the heartache. It went about trying this and that, concocting cold pictures after cold receipts, dealing in the second hand in the ready-made, and putting into its performances a little of everything 
but itself. When you see so many things in a composition, you might suppose that among them all some charm might be born. Yet they're really but the hundred mouths to which you hear the unhappy thing murmur, I'm dead. It's by the simplest thing it has that a picture lives, by its temper. Look at all the great talents, Domenichino as well as Titian, but think less of dogma than of plain nature, and I can almost promise you that yours will remain true. This is very little to what the aesthetic sage I have imagined might say, and we are, after all, unwilling to let our last verdict be an unkind one on any great bequest of human effort. The faded frescoes in the chapel at Grotta Ferrata leave us a memory the more of man's effort to dream beautifully, and they thus mingle harmoniously enough with our multifold impressions of Italy, where dreams and realities have both kept such pace and so strangely diverged. It was absurd, that was the truth, to be critical at all among the appealing old Italianisms round me, and to treat the poor exploded Bolognese more harshly than, when I walked back to Frascati, I treated the charming old waterworks of the Villa Aldobrandini. I confound these various products of antiquated art in a genial absolution, and I should like especially to tell how fine it was to watch this prodigious fountain come tumbling down its channel of mouldy rockwork through its magnificent vista of ilex to the fantastic old hemicycle where a dozen tritons and naiads sit posturing to receive it. The sky above the ilexes was incredibly blue, and the ilexes themselves incredibly black. And to see the young white moon peeping above the trees, you could easily have fancied it was midnight. I should like furthermore to expatiate on the Villa Mondragone, the most grandly impressive hereabouts of all such domestic monuments. The casino in the midst is as big as the Vatican, which it strikingly resembles, and it stands perched on a terrace as vast as the parvis of St. Peter's, looking straight away over black cypress tops into the shining vastness of the Campania. Everything somehow seemed immense and solemn. There was nothing small but certain little nestling blue shadows on the Sabine Mountains, to which the terrace seems to carry you wonderfully near. The place has been for some time lost to private uses, since it figures fantastically in a novel of Georges Sand, La Daniela, and now in quite another way as a Jesuit college for boys. The afternoon was perfect, and as it waned it filled the dark alleys with a wonderful golden haze. Into this came leaping and shouting a herd of little collegians, with a couple of long-skirted Jesuits striding at their heels. We all know, and I make the point for my antithesis, the monstrous practices of these people. Yet, as I watched the group, I verily believe I declared 
that if I had little son, I should go to Mondragone and receive their crooked teachings for the sake of the other memories, the avenues of Cyprus and Ilex, the view of the Campania, the atmosphere of antiquity. But doubtless, when a sense of mere character, shameless, incomparable character, has brought one to this, it is time one should pause. End of section 19